You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. Music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, sunny Davis Day. It is sunny, but it is getting cold, huh? A little brisk out there this morning, yes. And we're going to have actually a chance of frost on the morning of the broadcast. We're preparing this on November 8th. We'll be broadcasting Thursday, November 9th, 2023, with areas of frost and then partly sunny that day, 66 degrees being the high for Thursday. Thursday night, going to be mostly cloudy, 40 degrees. Pretty significant change in the weather over the next 7 to 10 days. Friday will be mostly sunny, 65 degrees. Beautiful fall color in our area right now, all around the area. Great opportunity to get out and look at some of those bright red and orange and yellow leaves on all the trees in Davis. Friday night, mostly clear, 38 degrees. Saturday, which is Veterans Day, will be sunny, 68 degrees. Saturday night, clear and then patchy fog. Looks like a low of about 38 degrees, and that fog will linger into the morning on Sunday. And then sunny, 66 degrees, and then here comes the change in the weather. A slight chance of showers on Monday, partly sunny, also 65 Chance of showers Monday night, mostly cloudy, low around 43, and then the showers likely Tuesday with a high only near 61. The forecast discussion shows several waves moving through Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And uh, Weather Underground, which always does a 10-day forecast, actually has put some numbers on that. On Tuesday the 14th, they're talking about a third of an inch of rain. Wednesday the 15th, three-quarters of an inch of rain. Thursday the 16th, another three-quarters of an inch of rain. And about a fifth of an inch on Friday the 17th before this is all out of here. So a couple of inches of rain possible by the end of next week. KDRT is community radio. We rely on contributions from listeners like you to fund our operating costs. If you like what you hear, head on over to KDRT.org, KDRT.org, and just click on the support button. Hey, while you're over there at KDRT.org, click on the schedule guide. You'll see an amazing array of music shows and public affairs shows. I'd like to highlight one right now. Peter Pasteur does Imagining Yolo Davis, where he interviews citizens or imaginers of this community who are imagining projects that will affect all of us for the greater good. Recent edition... Peter welcomed Carrie Shaw. She and the other founding members of the Puda Creek Council show us what volunteers can achieve, whether it's helping one individual, one tree, one pet, or in this case, reviving a creek. Volunteers can make a huge difference. So listen in as Carrie Shaw describes the beginning of the Puda Creek Council. We close the show, he says, with Creedence Clearwater's 1969 hit song, Green River, which is about Puda Creek. That's Imagining Yolo Davis, live Fridays, 5.30 to 6 p.m. Replays a couple times during the week. So for the rebroadcast time for Imagining Yolo Davis and all the other great programming here at KDRT, just click on the schedule guide. Okay, we have a whole bunch of topics lined up for this week. Yeah, we're just going to jump right in. Lois? Hey, Don, have the bulbs arrived yet? <laughs> well, that's a funny story. It used to be that the bulbs would arrive at my garden center in the middle of August. And I kept telling the bulb wholesalers, I don't have cold storage and you sending these to me and it's 105 degrees and 5% humidity. They are living things. You know, I'd really like to have them closer to actual fall, but that didn't work well for the larger wholesale distributors of bulbs. Now I get my bulbs in October and November. Neil, I don't want you planting tulip bulbs into warm soil. 
they start to grow, they don't develop properly. It affects their performance. It isn't that you need to chill them. We need to disabuse everyone of that, that notion, that myth that's out there that you have to put the tulips in the refrigerator for four to six weeks or they won't work properly. They will work fine. Just wait until the soil is cool before planting them. So we start planting tulips in our nursery in containers for sale in the spring in November, and we continue through December. Daffodils, crocus, don't worry about it. It's hyacinths, tulips, and the large flowered crocus, you don't put them into warm soil. No, you do not need to chill tulips for four to six weeks before planting. If you plant them without chilling them in your garden and the soil's a little warm, but not too warm, like say you do it in early November, they'll all come up and they'll bloom, but they won't bloom at the same time. So you won't have that Dutch garden look of all the red tulips blooming together like little soldiers in a row. You will have them over two or three weeks. And that's not the look people are expecting thanks to public gardens, which go to a lot of effort to get them all blooming together. So the purpose of chilling is uniformity. Depth of planting is very important for that as well. But as a home gardener, don't worry about it. Just wait till things are cooler here in Northern California and you can plant them. And you can plant, by the way, all the way into January. I want to emphasize there's a lot of bulbs out there that multiply great. You never have to do anything to them. Put them in the garden once and 10 years later, you'll have five times as many daffodils, narcissus. Um, a lot of, of the smaller bulbs will multiply that way. The ones that typically aren't in that category are the very popular tulips and hyacinths. There are tulips that multiply, but they're mostly smaller botanical types. Some tulips will repeat for a second year, but very few of them go on much more than that in the case of the larger flowered types. Hyacinths, I've had them repeat, but not increase. Do you happen to have a chart showing when the different bulbs flower and or when you should plant certain things? No, I wouldn't put that chart even if I had it on my website because people go to my chart from all over the world and they'd probably be confused. When I get these from the bulb suppliers, they're all a month off for our area. So uh, I can tell you the sequence of bloom, but uh, we get bulbs, you know, familiar bulbs like daffodils can be blooming as early as late January here. My February gold starts blooming in the last week of January in this area and of course continues into February. February. So there is a sequence of bloom. We're talking primarily right now about the fall planted winter and spring blooming bulbs. Spring, our bulbs are usually done by April for the ones we're talking about here. And I believe April is when tulips are in full bloom in like normal cold climates. So our whole season is shifted forward by about a month from the types of charts you would see. The timing for planting, whole big category planted here, November, December into January. Then there's a bunch of bulbs that aren't as popular anymore, so you aren't going to see them at as many garden centers, but they're the spring-planted, summer-blooming bulbs. And I'm using the term bulb generically because it includes corms and rhizomes and things like that. So gladiolus and dahlias and a lot of those things, you used to see them at garden centers starting in, let's say, February and into March or April here, a little later in colder climates. They've fallen out of favor to the point that a lot of nurseries have just given up on them. Or in the case of the really cool ones from South Africa and places like that, which are really special for California, not for colder climates, you're going to find them in containers. You're going to find wholesalers that buy the bulbs, pot them up and sell them to you in bloom. Crocosmia, Tritelia, Montbretia, Watsonias, things like that. All very easy to grow, all major multipliers in this area, but generally not as available in the bulb form as they used to be, more commonly now grown as plants. And I'm going to tell you, as a retailer, I sell half my bulbs in containers in bloom at this point. It used to be maybe 10%, but the buying public 
whatever reason doesn't plant bulbs in the fall for spring bloom, they come in the spring looking for bulbs. Okay. Hey, Don, I have an iris. It bloomed beautifully this spring. Mm -hmm. And then now it's just sitting there and the leaves are slowly dying back and Mm -hmm. there's getting fewer and fewer leaves on it. Uh, Should I be worried about that? Or is that the normal cycle for an iris? It's a normal cycle for a bearded iris that isn't getting a lot of water. Um, They tend to keep their foliage better if they're irrigated. But bearded irises are an unusual category in what we've been talking about. It's a rhizome, not a bulb, but it's in the same category of geophytes is the term for all those types of things, corms, rhizomes, bulbs, and so forth. Bearded irises we get in in July because we buy them locally from a special grower who happens to have a lot of really cool varieties. We actually get them from the Iris Society, basically. And so that's what we do. They People who are really into irises here, dig them up in the early to midsummer, usually July, pull off all the older leaves. They cut the leaves that are present for a couple of reasons. One is to make them easier to handle, and the other is to get rid of the bacterial disease that can become a problem on irises here. So just taking off the foliage helps to minimize that problem. They usually let them sit and dry for a while, which also reduces disease problems. And then they distribute them at their own uh, sale, which is in July or August. And so they tend to be available well before the other fall planted bulbs. You can plant them in the ground when you buy them, or as I can tell you from considerable experience, they can sit around for an amazingly long time. And you can put them in the ground later. Don't plant them too deep. A sunny spot is best. They'll start to grow right away and they'll bloom for you the next year and those can increase for years real iris growers real serious folks will divide every year or so get rid of the old rhizomes that are done clean off the old foliage and replant their beds and usually replenish the fertilizer because they figure the plants need that after all that that growth and and bloom but uh, you don't have to do all that kind of stuff every year or every other year i have irises on my farm that i planted 30 years ago that have simply migrated from where i planted them further out three or four feet and they're still blooming year after year. It's not the optimal way to take care of them, but they give me adequate results. So bearded irises are actually surprisingly easy to grow, but they're not as common in the bulb displays at garden centers because they're a little harder to handle. So you're probably better off finding someone who has some amazing irises or going to one of those really cool iris gardens that is probably somewhere in your vicinity and buying them from them because you'll be able to either see them in bloom or, uh, you know, and reserve them for fall delivery or even buy them in bloom in many cases right there in containers. There are thousands of varieties of bearded irises, amazing range of colors and textures and and petal categories and all this kind of thing. And they're one of the easiest flowers to grow. Bulbs. We we have lots of kinds of bulbs and 90% of them you plant in the fall. But what do you do about the bulbs that you want to eat? Your onions, your garlic, when do you plant those? Um, there are two different basic ways for planting onions and garlic and onions in particular. Uh, you can buy bulbs of them. You can buy little baby tiny bulbs of onions and plant them and you plant them in the fall and they grow through the winter and they are harvested in the late spring or early summer. If the nursery hasn't stored them correctly, like in a cooler, they won't develop real well and they're likely to flower. And so this is the number one complaint I get from people who buy the bulb. They grow fine and then they flower. And when a bulb, an onion flowers, it's hollow and doesn't keep very well. And I learned this from a big onion grower years ago that the, the proper ones who would sell those to farmers or to nurseries that were going to sell them to home gardeners like truck farmer type folks with small farm operations would keep them in a cooler and urge you to keep them in a cooler till you got them planted. The best way, in my opinion, to do onions is from starts that you buy in early November, nurseries 
the number of us that are willing to still do this are, are dwindling. So you may not be able to find them at your local garden center because it is kind of a hassle. We get 32,000 bare root onion seedlings in boxes that are just packed in there. We notify 80 or so old guys that their onions are in. They come running down there, start rummaging through the boxes and we have to straighten them up and cover them if it's raining and all this kind of stuff. Not the kind of thing that your modern garden center wants to hassle with, but I'm not a modern garden center. So there are places that do sell them that way. Uh, you can buy them that way from online vendors who will ship in January. That's okay. That works, but fall would be better. Uh, or you can do your own from seed. Uh, that way you would want to get started in August, September, get those seeds going. It's a little late for onions from seed now, even here in the Sacramento Valley. So you would look for plants in early November. Uh, garlic, uh, very easy. You just buy a garlic head that has been grown certified disease free. That's important. And you break it into cloves, just the kind of cloves you'd use in cooking. Each clove is planted in the ground a couple inches deep, put them four to six inches apart, give them some kind of nitrogen when you plant them, good for onions as well. So they'll get off to a good growing start and each of those cloves will form a head. So garlic's really, really easy. And you plant them basically October to November. They can also be planted in the late winter. I've had people do this and I've done it myself just to see how it works. Late January, February, when it first feels like spring here, they'll grow and they'll be fine. It's just that the cloves and the heads will be smaller. But uh, if you want full size, best results, you plant them October, November into December. And of course, the most common question we get is? Is what? <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't send you your cue. <laughs> Can't I just buy garlic at the grocery store and plant it? Sure. Well, it I, I could, but it's not diseased. I mean, let's put it this way. It's not diseased, as in it's not bad to eat, but right. it isn't guaranteed not to carry something that growing would not be good. A plant disease, correct. They're not guaranteed disease, certified disease free. And states do actually certify this. So it, this goes for potatoes as well as garlic and things like that. They're grown in a disease-free environment. It's certified to the different states where they're grown that they are disease-free. So, you know, you won't necessarily have a problem with it in the case of garlic. You can try it. I've seen stem rust and certain diseases on garlic when that happens, but usually they do fine. It's just more of a risk. And if you buy disease-free stock, you know, you're just like, less likely to have that risk. So yes, you can buy something at the grocery store. Just be aware that you might have might have a production problem. Probably not, but it might happen. Same thing with potatoes. And it seems like every other day right now, we're answering questions about potatoes. Do you have potatoes? No, we get them in the spring. <laughs> we get them in February, March. There are apparently places that sell them in the fall. We've talked about that before. Well, can I just buy some in the grocery store? Yes, except potatoes in the grocery store that are conventional have been treated with a sprouting inhibitor. So that'll slow down the sprouting. So you better wait until that wears off and they start to sprout or else you could put them in the ground. They'll just rot. Second, once again, they're not certified disease free. And with potatoes, that can make a difference because if a potato comes into your garden with Phytophthora infestans or one of those types of diseases, the whole bed can rot and then you have a problem there pretty much forever. So really better to get disease free, certified disease free potato starts. But again, they're typically not available to most of us until February or March. So fall planting is not done with potatoes here in the valley. Typically anyway, they're better planted in late winter, early spring, but some people want to try it. So at that point, I think you're stuck with either going back and listening to an older show, finding that mail order source that we talked about, or trying one from the store, being aware that you're taking a risk, unfortunately, in the case of potato diseases that are rather famous throughout history. So Another question came in. Oh, by the way, Don, if somebody wants to send us a question, where should they send that? Well, just tap me on the shoulder when you're standing behind me <laughs> in Minute Nugget and ask your question. I might remember it. Or davisgardenshow at gmail.com. 
Ilya from Tiburon writes, I'd like to make a suggestion for a topic to discuss. It would be great to put some kind of structure on how to fertilize plants. Packages list proportions, but I'm more interested in a seasonal schedule, if such a thing even exists. Or do I wait for the plant to start looking unhealthy and then fertilize it? So there's a topic for us to it's consider. A, it's a big topic. Let's talk briefly about it. And yes, I do agree that's something to come back to because fertilizer manufacturers, of course, would love you to fertilize on a regular schedule. Scott's brand is one of the best known lawn food companies in the world and the largest by far in the horticulture industry in the United States for fertilizers and practically everything else. For years had a chart. My grandfather was a devoted Scott's customer with his dichondrolon in Pasadena. And he had a chart that said, this is when you feed with this, and this is when you feed with this, and this, and this. And I saw this, and I went to college, and I studied soil science, and I thought, there's no actual evidentiary basis for this <laughs> okay they're but just it having sells fertilizer done. it does and we started to open our garden center we called scott's and other companies and scott's had a whole program they'd ship you this pallet of the spring stuff in february and this pallet of the summer stuff and and they wanted you to get your customers on a four to six times a year feeding schedule and that was for turf primarily but you'll run into the same thing scott's owns miracle grow miracle grow for a while was telling people to put that hose end sprayer on feed their plants every three weeks round the calendar that's a lot of overfeeding and there's a lot of things in there that plants really don't need you to be applying that often we've harped on this many times about how phosphorus is almost never deficient potassium would be rarely if ever deficient nitrogen is mainly what you need and so you would time your nitrogen to growth cycles of the plant depending on the type of nitrogen whether it is going to use it right away or take it in and store it i'll tell you real generally nitrogen is the main thing that you're almost always deficient in whether we're talking about trees shrubs flowers or particularly vegetables and the sources people are using nowadays are mostly organic which breaks down slowly and steadily so if you're using an organic fertilizer a spring feeding of summer growing things will provide what they need for the whole summer typically raised planters may be another feeding midsummer. a fall feeding for woody plants and perennials will be taken in by the plants as they're going into their winter more or less shutdown mode depending on where you are and they'll store it and they'll have it available when they need it in the early spring or late winter when it may be more difficult for you to get fertilizer onto a plant due to weather conditions so a good rule of thumb is nitrogen in the spring and nitrogen in the fall anything else phosphorus potassium would be based on a soil test if you've had your soil tested and it shows a deficiency of those things you would apply that and generally the soil testing company will give you a rate of application the timing will depend on where you're listening so that would be a more complicated question but we'll answer it in a in a future show um, you would be putting these on because they are deficient in the soil not to prevent something, not because you think it helps to enhance flowering or fruiting. They don't do that. Those are claims that are made that are essentially false. But if you have a deficiency, if your soil test has shown that you need phosphorus, it's complicated to get it to the plant. We can talk about that in another program, but you would be doing that because it is apparently deficient. Um, fertilizer numbers don't have anything to do with how plants use fertilizer fertilizer schedules on the bags and the promotional materials don't have anything to do with with when how plants use fertilizer they're primarily marketing and i would say most of what you deal with in soil science fertilizers and such is i hate to say this marketing mainly what you need is nitrogen but if you haven't had a soil test done applying phosphorus potassium the other materials is probably not only unnecessary i won't say it's harmful but when i look at soil tests in our area 
phosphorus is off the charts. People have been applying it to their rose beds for years and years and years, and it's as high as the bar will go on their test output. So we're not toxic levels, but we're way up there. And it's hard to get rid of it if you have a whole lot of it in there. So mainly nitrogen, mainly spring, mainly fall. There you go. How's that? <laughs> and you don't, just for the record, need to feed your lawn six times a year. I know, I'm sorry, Scott's, they, I know you've been telling people this forever. You don't need to fertilize your lawn six times a year. If you do, it'll be really green and really lush and you'll have to mow it more often. And those lawn clippings you're taking off will have as much as 3% nitrogen in them. So your lawn clippings now become a source of fertilizer if you follow their schedule. And I have compared their schedule, Scott's brand, to other turf fertilizer brands that are out there. And I will say that Scott's is generally recommending about 30% more nitrogen on an annual basis than other companies. And here's an issue with that. There are places in the country where nitrogen fertilizer in particular is a source of pollution. Nitrates getting off of your lawn, running into the storm drains, going into the waterways and into your lake and Chesapeake Bay and places like that. So there are some areas that are ecologically sensitive where they're trying to restrict how much fertilizer you can put on your lawn at one time. How would you do that? Well, you can't control the home gardener once they've bought the bag. So you control what goes on the label. And hopefully over time, this very large company will scale back their nitrogen recommendations to be more in keeping with the other companies. Because I looked at one of these regulations in New York state and the amount they're recommending all the other companies, their label were right in there. Scott's wouldn't be. It would have been above the rate of application that would be regulated in your community. You don't need to feed it as often. You don't need to feed it as much. Your lawn in particular, spring and fall feeding with an organic fertilizer that uses a quarter as much nitrogen as the conventional fertilizer will give you just as good results. So again, just as with irrigation, here's our bottom line. Plant performance is your best guide to whether you've got the right nutrient status in your soil. So this week, Don sent me the links to a couple of articles about red-humped caterpillars. Yes. And one is at the UCIPM website, which we talk about all the time. Very scientific, very nice, very, uh-huh. And then the other one, it's from the Bug Squad. Yeah. Right? Yes. Um, that is U but they have a blog called The Bug Squad. Anyway, both of them are articles about red-humped caterpillar aptly named. Yes, and very easy. And what they look like, and here's what they do, and all that sort of stuff. So I if wanna, you're interested... I, I want to mention this blog, first of all. Bug Squad, Happenings in the Insect World, is written by Kathy Keatley Garvey, who is one of the best photographers I've seen. She does amazing photography of insects. And uh, she has been publishing this blog at UCANR, now formerly ipm.ucdavis, for a number of years. It is ucanr.edu slash blogs. And then you just look for Bug Squad. And I urge you to bookmark it and check back there because I find it very readable and fun. And there's always a link to the official ucanr.edu, you know, how do we deal with this pest page. But this is um, a lot more entertaining. And she uh, goes on about the red-humped caterpillar, which is, of course, aptly named, one of the easiest caterpillars to identify. Art Shapiro, one of our friends and the distinguished professor of evolution and ecology at UC Davis, told us that the red hump contains a defensive formic acid gland. Formic acid is what ants are made of. And his comment, they hold their anal prolegs, which are not useful for walking, in the air and thrash their rear ends in unison when disturbed. <laughs> red caterpillar, as he says, is the only defoliator of red bud. 
Western redbud or the other types of redbud, Circus, around here, and it's very common. That's putting it mildly. It also attacks walnuts and a variety of other chemically distinctive trees that other things don't eat as a rule. Art has done a considerable amount of research on what mediates the behavior of different insects, and his common theme is chemicals in the plants attract or repel certain plants, uh, certain pests, excuse me, or we call them pests, certain insects that feed upon them. And I have observed red hump caterpillars on my property, yes, eating walnuts, eating cherries, and eating red bud. And it's not a huge problem, except that it's a whole mass of eggs, 30, 40 in one place, and they all hatch at the same time. And they all start fanning out from where they hatch the same day. And the first thing you notice is skeletonized leaves, that is to say leaves where the part of the leaf that isn't a vein has been eaten. Pretty quickly, they're eating the veins and the rest of the leaf. And pretty quickly, they're eating all the leaves on a whole branch. A walnut tree, big deal. Cherry tree, big deal. But a young redbud that you just put in, they can eat all the foliage. So in general, we don't think it's necessary to do anything about red hump caterpillars, except be aware of them. Be aware that at least in my experience, they seem to have at least a couple of generations here. Um, his comment is the damage is minor. He strongly advises against spraying. Handpicking can be used if control is deemed necessary. But they feed so late in the season, he says, that there is no actual harm to the tree. The moth, it would be great, in my opinion, if the moth were beautiful, you know, or like a butterfly, like a monarch or something. We all care about those. Well, the moth, unfortunately, is, as he describes it, nondescript. And it holds its wings wrapped around the body cylindrically and looks, as he puts it, remarkably like a cigarette butt, though it is probably <laughs> imitating a broken off twig. So despite authoritative commentary to the contrary, they have two broods a year here that are usually seen in the fall. The species is native on both coasts of the United States and oddly absent in most of the mid-continent. And that does correspond, I thought it was multiple generations, so this is actually very useful information, does correspond to my observation that we first get people asking and concerned about them June to July, maybe 1st of August, then a whole other group of people late September, October. So that appears to be the second brood. By the time most of you notice them, they're practically mature as caterpillars. They've done enough damage that you're seeing full-on, full-size caterpillars. So, And they're all still pretty much on one branch or even just on a few leaves. So if you do feel the need to control them because you're concerned about your red bud you know, completely being defoliated, pick them off. Hand pick the, pick the leaves, put them in a bag, throw them away, something like that. Pretty quickly, though, from the time you notice them, either jays and mockingbirds will come in and take them off, which is almost always what happens on my property, or they'll finish up, fall to the ground, pupate, lie there, coming up again next year. So if you've had a problem one year, pretty good chance you'll have it the next year. Watch for the skeletonized leaves first because you can prevent a lot of damage if you catch them early. If you want to pick them, fine. If you really, if it's too big for that, there's a very safe organic spray, the BT sprays, Bacillus thuringiensis, which are specific for caterpillars. And uh, you can do that just on that tree. So you're only hurting those caterpillars, not the other ones in your yard, and control them that way. BT sprays are more effective on young caterpillars than older ones. So the earlier you catch them or see them doing the damage, the earlier you'll get good results from the spray. In general, we don't think it's necessary to do much, but I do understand when you just put in a little five gallon red bud and all its leaves are being eaten off, could be a little disconcerting. So you might decide to do a spray for that. And that leads to another suggestion from Don to Lois and everybody else. Go outside and look at your yard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Walk through it, see what's happening to it. You know, if if suddenly there's leaves 
leaves gone, gone. you wouldn't <laughs> notice that if you didn't go out there every day or two. Yeah, I mean, most of what we do at a garden center falls into two categories. Uh, we either deal with helping people choose plants for particular places, plant selection for environmental design. We call it the, what is, I have this place question. Or we help them diagnose problems on plants uh, and based on either their description, a photograph, or you know, playing 20 questions. And that is the I have this pest questions. And mostly when they're feeding questions, something is eating the leaves. I look at first thing, size of the holes. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the simplest things you can look at because that narrows it down quite a bit. I look at the fact that they're holes. I mean, people will talk in, come in and say, well, the aphids are doing this. Aphid mouth parts can't make holes. So let's rule them out. Um, are they small holes? Are they big holes? Are they starting on the edge and working in? Or are they big old holes anywhere on the leaf? Are they torn? Are the leaves completely gone? You know, that's moving up to rodent scale of, of problems and so forth. Look at the nature of the hole and try to visualize the mouth parts that caused that. And that will narrow it down for you quite a bit. Then you can figure out whether, as with any integrated pest management approach, now that you've probably identified the pest, you monitor the situation. And if the population is increasing to levels that are going to be harmful to the plant, or if you're farmer harmful to the crop, you decide you're going to take action at some point. We always like the first action to be non-chemical. Um, change in the environment, a physical strategy such as removal, stomping them, two bricks, whatever you prefer to use. <laughs> or in some cases, you may just decide, okay, I can accept some defoliation on this tree. Your apricot tree being partially defoliated by caterpillars won't affect next year's crop at all won't affect the vigor of the tree at all. So you can accept it if it's just a small amount. By comparison, folks who live in places where gypsy moths are common or pests like that tell me, no, they defoliate the tree completely. You better do something or else if that happens year after year, it'll weaken the tree. So you have to choose whether there's a level at which you're going to take action. And then that level is the least toxic alternative first. And in this case, we have a very simple organic remedy that's available at any garden center or hardware store, and it's quite easy to use. So, you know, there's, there's an easy way to go. And one of the popular easy ways to go is be aware of it and ignore it i have a an easy way i'm not sure it'll work uh, take a hose and spray it off caterpillars you can blast you know when they're young if you went out there and blasted off the branch that has little tiny caterpillars on it they're not going to crawl back up there uh, they'll go somewhere they might feed on something but probably not or they so might that, fall to the ground and become prey for very likely yeah, eating. yeah yeah i mean we find that uh, for example the the caterpillar that's feeding on all your broccoli and cauliflower right now the imported cabbage worm we're rinsing the plants at our nursery off for other reasons white flies sometimes aphids but more commonly white flies at this time of year we can see the individual solitary eggs of the imported cabbage worm on the leaves and we do try to rub them off when we see them but you know when we rinse off the plant to minimize white flies, we'd knock those legs off, excuse me, those eggs off. And it does give a very good level of control that way. We have very, very little pest damage, even though we see these cabbage worms all over our garden center. Uh, we watch for the eggs and just rinsing does actually help to manage them. Rinsing is more of a technique for sucking insects uh, or you know things like white flies, which are in the, the, the sucking stage is what you're trying to get rid of. It is less effective typically on chewing insects, but if they're small enough, blasting them off, especially egg form, that can give a very good level of control and the young caterpillars as well. What it is not effective for is Tree rats, rats, squirrels, and <laughs> birds. Uh, it works pretty well with squirrels if you get them right in the face. <laughs> <laughs> rinse, they don't hang around long enough for you to rinse them off. Typically not, no. no. Okay. And well, lots, i got to tell you, we have had so many questions in the last two weeks about 
plants just disappearing. Uh, you know, and they covered over the bed, so it can't be the sparrows. And I say, well, it, well, very likely not the sparrows and more than likely tree rats just went right under the cover and went in there and fed on them. You made a nice place for them by covering it to keep the sparrows away. So I had to say that my recommendation on this, if you, if you don't know for sure whether you're dealing with white crowned sparrows or tree rats, squirrels are a possibility as well. But white crowned sparrows and squirrels are visible during the daytime. You'll see them if you're home during the day. You'll look out there, see the activity. So putting a barrier on during the daytime for white crowned sparrows can be very effective. Regrettably, therefore, you're shrouding over your vegetable garden, making nice hiding place at night. So tree rats only feed at night. They only come out at night. You'll see them out at 10, 11 p.m. running along your fence line, going through the trees and coming into your garden and looking for a nice safe place where they can hunker down and feel quite protected from anything coming down from above like an owl. So that cover you put on for the white crowned sparrows regrettably makes a nice hiding place for the tree rats. So the best approach, if you don't know which it is or you think you might have both, which is another issue for some people, cover them over with the seedling blanket during the daytime, pull it off at sunset, Cover them over the next morning, pull it off at sunset. I know that's tedious, but that'll probably take or, care of the. Or when you cover them over, put stakes in the ground so nothing can get under them. Well, tree rats can get into anything if they're but, motivated. So yeah. you could put you could put barriers. Yes, you could. And if you're using something for for both rats and sparrows, you would probably want to use wire mesh rather than the seedling blanket. The seedling blanket is really easy to put on, so that's really cool. Yeah. Wire mesh, you're getting into more of a cage for your vegetable garden, but uh, sometimes that's all you that's all you can do. I've had people lose, you know, come in on one weekend, plant a whole bunch of vegetables, come back the next weekend, say everything was gone. They went out one morning, it was just completely gone that's demoralizing so i've decided we should probably start selling wire mesh <laughs> that's a good plan that's go. a good plan in fact Our why don't we ask the listeners here who, there's a lot of engineer students here in, in california no, 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 no. i don't want that. i don't i don't <laughs> they, want that. they can no but they can make their own Fine. <laughs> <laughs> all right you know if you now, happen, let's get on to another if you happen question. to be at our garden center and you happen to see the greenhouse in the back Hook your head in one of them and you'll see all of the seedling flats are in cages. In the greenhouse? In the greenhouse, because it's a huge problem in greenhouses. You come in in the morning and all of your snapdragons are gone. They've been decimated by mice or rats overnight. And it's very common in greenhouses. So rather than trap, or certainly we're not going to use bait or anything like that, we put the seedling flats in cages that we've made until they're up big enough that we feel they're big enough to transplant and move up into one one more stage of caging, and then they go out and they're on their own at that point. We literally have the seedlings in the greenhouses in cages. What do we do about powdery mildew? This is on a big crepe myrtle tree. The blooms are fine. It looks okay. Just the leaves look bad. Should it be treated with something? There's no practical way to treat a mildew-infected uh, crepe myrtle. The older varieties that were sold widely until about 30 or 40 years ago were quite prone to powdery mildew in western states here in California. So they would grow fine and they bloom fine. But if you look at the leaves, they got a lot of mildew on them as we go in through the summer. Um, I don't see the point in getting a sprayer and spraying a 15 to 20 foot tree for a fungus that doesn't really harm the tree. So if you're getting the blooms out of it, you're keeping it healthy with deep waterings and the plant basically looks fine, don't worry about it. There's no practical spray 
for that. If you're considering a crepe myrtle, then buy one of the new hybrids that are quite resistant to powdery mildew. All of the modern hybrids, they have Indian tribe names and other names like that. Uh, they the Lagerstromia indica x fowri, the crosses between the two species. The reason that was done was that it conferred powdery mildew resistance to all of the progeny. And so Natchez and Tuscarora and Muscogee and Pecos and others like that, same beautiful blooms, generally rather somewhat bigger and even more robust plants in some cases with larger leaves, great fall color, and they're resistant to powdery mildew. So the answer is nothing to really be done about it. If the plant's okay, just enjoy the flowers and don't worry about it. One thing you can do, I suppose it would help, and I discussed this with the customer who was asking about it, rather than hard pruning, like people like to do with great myrtles, where they head them back, it's not necessary, it's not really good for them, so we don't like to have people do that anyway, prune it to be more open. Open it up a little bit, get better airflow through there, get better sunlight into the plant. That'll at least reduce the symptoms. So when you're pruning, thin the tree out rather than heading it back. That's the one thing you as a homeowner or gardener can do to at least reduce the impact of the powdery mildew. And is powdery mildew on that crepe myrtle going to, um, I don't know, drop to the ground or fly to the next bush or escape into the air or <laughs> well, somehow... You know, is it will it spread. spread. It spreads from crepe myrtle to crepe myrtle. But the good news is that particular powdery mildew, like so many of them, is specific to crepe myrtle. So it's not going to go from your crepe myrtle to your roses. That's the key thing that people often want to know about. So no, it's not a source of diseases, except to other non-hybrid crepe myrtles that might happen to be in your yard. All right, going back to the mailbag, I have one. Um, Jim from Davis sent us a photo. And it's it's a plastic flower, but it has this giant moth on it. And he asks, what is this? Can you send us details? What do moths eat? What do moths eat? Well, moths are the adult, you know, the caterpillar turns into a butterfly or a moth. By the way, the picture, cool picture, that's a sphinx moth or hawk moth. Sphinx moths, uh, you know them in your garden as tomato hornworms. The official name I learned as a student of ag science was tobacco hornworms because they actually do have a protocol for common names of insect pests. Unlike plants, they actually use common names and they name it after the first crop it was found on. So we all learned it as tobacco hornworm, not tomato hornworm, but most home gardeners aren't growing tobacco. They are growing tomatoes. And at some point, almost anyone growing tomatoes will encounter tomato hornworm. And we have three different kinds of sphinx moths in this area. If I recall, I've certainly seen two. One is very big and the other is smaller. Uh, they're cool, really actually rather amazing moths. And for several years, I hadn't seen any of them. I had no reports of hornworm damage. I didn't see any sphinx moths. This went on for quite a while. Our preeminent butterfly and moth expert in the region and I were chatting about that probably 10 years ago. He said, as far as he was concerned, they were basically extinct from our area. He used that term because he hadn't seen one. And this is a man whose entire uh, livelihood is monitoring butterflies and moths. And so if he hadn't seen them, well, they're not out there. And then all of a sudden, a few years back, they started showing up again. I don't know why. And they're showing up in my garden here and there. I found one tomato hornworm last year. The hornworm itself, the caterpillar, of course, eats tomatoes and specifically them, although tomato, they'll leaves. tomato leaves. And if there's a little fruit there, they'll eat it more or less by accident. They don't, they don't intentionally eat ripening fruit. They will wander off onto peppers and eggplant and do some damage, but clearly it's not their preference. Their preference is the foliage of 
tomato plants. And they can eat an amazing amount, but your tomato vines are generally vigorous enough that one or two hornworms aren't a huge problem. They're also pretty easy to spot once you know what you're looking for. As with all caterpillars, look for the droppings first. In their case, this is like a three or four inch caterpillar. They're big droppings. You'll find them. Look up. You'll find the thing. You'll jump back the first time you see one. The horn on the back is a clear indicator. You have a tomato hornworm, tobacco hornworm, and you can just flick that off of there, throw it over the fence, cut it in half if you're so inclined. I don't usually worry that much about it. I just throw them away from the tomato plant and figure that at least one of the birds walking through my property will find it and take care of it. They don't do that much damage. It's almost never necessary to spray for tomato hornworms, just hand pick them. In fact, it can be kind of fun to put them in a vivarium and keep adding tomato foliage, watch how much they eat, watch them pupate, watch the pupa turn into this amazing sphinx moth. The sphinx moths fly at night and they go to all kinds of different flowers, four o'clocks, evening primrose, cactus flowers, all kinds of things. Anything that's blooming at night that has some fragrance or a big visible flower, you'll typically see these hawk moths or sphinx moths visiting. I think they're very cool and I think it's very interesting to have them in the garden. So they're pollinators. Well, probably not terribly efficient at that, but I believe they probably are. However, they're, they are feeding not eating the flower, they're drinking from the flower. So they have a chewing apparatus, as they describe it, that is a tube-like apparatus called a proboscis, just like a butterfly. And it gives them a way to pump fluid to suck on a flower's nectar, which then flows, as they are describing here, this cool website called scienceabc.com, flows into its digestive tract and is excreted through its anus. Adult moths need this nectar fluid to power their wings. It's basically a very condensed source of sugar energy, much like hummingbirds use them. And they visit some of the same flowers as hummingbirds. They also suck honeydew, juices from decaying fruits, tree sap, manure liquid, animal droppings or feces. Adult moths generally tend to eat foods rich in sodium or minerals that enhance their virility. They are consumed to gain energy for reproductive purposes through this diet. This is why they often <laughs> land on people's shoulders in the park to lick sodium-rich sweat. Charming. But mostly what, <laughs> mostly what they're doing is landing there to get the nectar from the flower, which is practically pure sugar water for them. Same thing, same as hummingbirds. These are plants that are high velocity wings. I don't think that's the right term, but you know, moving really rapidly and they need a lot of energy. And so they need things that are really high in sugar and other minerals to keep going. And so they go to flowers that provide them with sugar water, basically. Uh, the, the, the larva is not a huge nuisance. I don't urge people to get too freaked out about it. If you got one tomato plant and a couple of hornworms, yeah, they can eat an awful lot of foliage. So just pick them off and kill them. But you don't really ever need to spray for these or, or worry that much about them. And they're not that common, interestingly. You typically see See these moths at night around your porch light and they if they get in the house it can be kind of a, a you know challenge because they're big but for the most part they're just an outdoor moth that's visiting cool flowers so are these the ones that are uh, mistakenly identified as hummingbirds you could make that mistake from a distance because they fly in a sort of a similar pattern they do hover they uh they do go to the same kinds of flowers but uh you'd only see them at night so we'd be mistaking it for a hummingbird at night. Do hummingbirds come out at night? No, but no. at dusk, you know, it could be either day or yes. night. Yes, at dusk, at dusk, you could see either of them, correct. And they'd be visiting some of the same flowers. On my property, the, the sphinx moths will visit almost anything, but they definitely have a preference for four o'clocks, evening primrose, um, and some of the cactus and things that are flowers that open at night. There's a lot of flowers that open, particularly desert flowers, that open 
at dusk release a lot of volatile organic compounds, fragrance, that drifts quite a distance. If you're a night flowering thing in the desert, you're pretty few and far between. <clears throat> you got to work hard to get those pollinators that might be flying around down to you. So you're going to have bright white flowers like Datura. You're going to have vivid flowers like some of the cactus. You're going to be putting out a lot of fragrance in some cases. And you're going to be open during the night when your petals won't be burnt by the extreme heat of the desert. And then you'll be closing first thing in the morning. So those of us who grow some of these things know that if you want to enjoy your night blooming cactus, either get up really early or go out at midnight and take a picture of it because that's when it's going to be open for business. That's when it's going to be out there for pollinators, which can include not just these moths, but things like bats. I have a friend who lives in Arizona who set up his camera because he knew that bats were visiting his night blooming Sirius cactus and he knew it was happening and he wanted to get a picture of it. And after quite a while, he managed to get a perfect picture of bat flying in, pollinating the, uh, the night blooming Sirius flower and it destroyed the flower. <laughs> okay. This is like having a large mouse, you know, trying to crawl around in a flower, but it was really, really impressive. I have that picture somewhere. So night, night pollinators, the plants that have co-evolved with night pollinators have unique methods for attracting them, ranging from very vivid, bright flowers to a lot of fragrance, and in some cases, both. Oh, Don, I wanted to talk to you about weeping trees. Now, mm. you said mm-hmm. this question. I really like the look of a weeping willow, but I've been told those aren't good garden trees Mm-mm. from my yard. Mm-mm. Are there any <laughs> other trees that are graceful and weeping like that? So let's first say, what is a weeping tree? And why would a weeping willow not be good? A weeping tree is a tree, let's see if I have my botany correct, with strong strong apical dominance and weak apical control. Okay, so if you take introductory botany, you'll look up the hormone relations in plants that cause, that create the structure of the tree, the, the habit of the tree, the growth habit of the tree. Take a weeping willow and a Christmas tree. Couldn't be more opposite. That's because of hormones. The hormones being released by the highest bud or the furthest out bud on this year's growth either suppress strongly or weakly the growth of buds below them. In the case of a weeping willow or a fruitless mulberry or many other plants, that bud suppresses every possible bud on that branch all the way through the season. So what you get is one long whip of a branch with no branching below it. Then the next year, that bud is gone many of those buds will break and come out and each of them will do the same thing. And when it's that long, it can't keep going up. It goes up and then it goes out and over. So that's how you get a weeping tree. If this hormonal suppression of buds is weaker to the point that it just slows them down, but doesn't suppress them, then they're growing at about the same pace, but a little slower than the central leader. And they grow out steadily and you get a Christmas tree. That's how you, so that's Weak ap- apical dominance, but strong apical control. I think I have those right. I didn't get out my botany textbook. <laughs> basically, is telling you that the hormones this year affect the growth of this year. And then overall, the con- apical control is the growth pattern of the entire thing over time. Um, weeping trees have very strong apical dominance. So a branch just goes out and out and out and out and out and over. Out and out and out and out and over. And the next year's ones do the same thing. So I have no fewer than three weeping willows on my property that I planted. And uh, in their, they're also very fast growing trees with aggressive root systems. And in their third year, my two most recently planted weeping willows are 15 feet by 15 feet. And they're going out as much as they're going up and they're very strongly weeping already. And they'll increase their height mostly by going up and then over. Not by going straight up, but by going up and then over. Many plants have this growth habit. 
Um, some have a slightly different version of it, like the Chilean Maytan, things like that. But there are variants of trees out there that have a weeping willow habit because of a spontaneous mutation that occurred in this hormonal suppression of lower growth buds that has made a weeping form of that tree. An example being the weeping Santa Rosa plum, which is a lovely fruit tree. Santa Rosa plum, classic all-purpose California plum. It's probably the most familiar plum in California. Unpruned uh, fifth, or properly trained, I should say, a, a Santa Rosa plum, 15 by 15, greater height than spread typically, but pretty close and not a strongly outward growth habit, but a variant occurred many, many, many years ago when you're propagating something by cuttings, it's not uncommon for a mutation to occur. Roses, fruit trees all do this. You're producing thousands of them. One of them will have a different growth habit. That's very apparent in the growing fields because of what you have with a Santa Rosa plum is a long row of hundreds, if not thousands of the same clone. Hey, look, this one's growing differently. It certainly will stand out. If that's consistent, if it holds that pattern, then you now have a weeping form of what is otherwise not typically a weeping tree. And if it's consistent enough and attractive enough, you may propagate it and sell it. And the weeping Santa Rosa plum is out there as an example of a lovely plum that produces huge amounts of fruit, just as much as the form that it derived from on a tree that's got a very graceful weeping habit. Why do we not recommend weeping willows? Because their roots are extremely aggressive. Their roots go that's well- that's the willow part, not the weeping part. Right. This is true of all willows in general. They, I, I love willows. I collect them, but I'm on a farm. So um, I can tell you that the roots go well past the canopy of the tree. They're notoriously aggressive. They're, they, they always talk about them seeking water. No, let's just a better a, a phrase for it is that they exploit water when they find it very aggressively. If you have it near your sprinkler lines or your helpless, your septic line, you'll have a major problem with them. And they're not real long lived trees, much like birches and other fast growing trees that are riparian like that. They grow really rapidly, then they kind of fall apart. They get borers, they die back. They can become very important habitat at that point, but you got kind of a dead tree on your hands. And so that's a rural property type of thing, not something you would ever want to do in a residential setting. And no, there's not like a miniature weeping willow that gives you the same effect. So they are very graceful and people absolutely love the way they look near a body of water or near, you know, as, as a focal point. And I've always absolutely loved weeping willows and positioned these three very carefully on my property. They're in the category of cottonwoods and poplars and birches and some others. If there's places you really don't want to plant them, and of the first three, willows, cottonwoods, poplars, definitely not in a typical residential setting because of the aggressive roots, because of the suckering tendency, which is common with riparian willows as well. Um, you just don't want them unless you live out in the country somewhere. So how do you get that graceful appearance without going to the classic form, the weeping willow? Weeping cherry. Yeah, there's one good example. Um, and there's lots of weeping cherries that are not, uh, excuse me, lots of flowering cherries that are not weeping, but you're referring to the weeping flowering cherries of which there are two or three varieties. If you've got room, Prunus subhertella pendula, don't, don't have a common name for it, but that's a, a very umbrella shaped weeping cherry. 20 by 20 would be its mature size in let's say 20 years, outward and then down like an umbrella. Very graceful. When it's in bloom, extremely attractive. If you don't have room for that much spread, please don't plant it where you don't have room for it. I mean, it really needs to be fully able to spread. Nothing looks worse to me than a tree that's been pruned because it doesn't have room. And so you can't get the benefit of that beautiful growth habit. Uh, but there is a much smaller one called snow 
fountains, which is another weeping cherry that has a very weeping form to the point that they have to stake this thing up, 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 up to whatever height you want. And then it just cascades back down. Basically what it is, it's a ground cover version of a cherry that you stake up and make it into a weeping tree. This happens occasionally uh, that you'll have a mutation where it literally does not grow upright. So you tie it upright. So you have a trunk, you decide how high you want it to go, that's where you stop tying it, and then once the tree is stable enough, you remove the stakes and you now have this lovely small weeping cherry. Snow Fountains is the name of that one. Well, you could get the same effect in slightly different ways. I'm thinking of trunked rows and multi-stem thing. Now, I had a situation where everything got cut back to eight feet and it was like stumped. So I took all of those uh, five or six sprouts that were going to be the new leaders and I tied them together into a small compact group uh, up to about eight feet tall. And then I'd let the top arch and arch back down. Now, Lady Banks Rose isn't perhaps the best example because it was <laughs> so big that it, I mean, it will it will go twenty feet tall. Weeping isn't the term for what it's doing, right? But it's, Spra- but it's sprawling. Laying, it's, it's a sprawling laying, rose. It's sprawling. It's laying down. But I have seen, for example, some of the abutilons that they go up and then they arch and fall over. And if you tied a couple of those of their stems together, you could make a, a lovely arching thing. Well, you're talking about things that are a little complicated for that, but it is done with some conifers, for example. You can contrive a weeping tree out of any of a number of things. Uh, there, One classic thing to use in a, a landscape where you're getting what you might call Asian overtones is to take the Japanese garden juniper, Juniperus chinensis procumbens nana green mound, one of the longest names in the plant world, and stake, it's a ground cover juniper. It's a very attractive one, and it can take some shade or a fair bit of sun, so it's quite adaptable, very nice-looking, nubbly texture. You can tie that up, a stake. There's an Atlas cedar variant that you can do the same thing with. Tie it up as high as you want to go. Stop tying it. Leave that stake on. That's probably going to need a stake for a long time, if not throughout the life of the plant. And then it'll go back to doing what it was trying to do before, which is be a ground cover and arch back down to the ground. And then you just very carefully prune it. It can be a real interesting feature. And that's done with any of a number of plants. There's a form of bottle brush that has a rather weeping habit. So by its nature as a shrub, it's never a tree. It sprawls all over the place. Well, some bright nursery owner somewhere figured out, hey, I can stake this. I can turn this into a tree. And we can sell it as a weeping bottle brush. Hey, now you have a beautiful feature in your landscape. And one other that I have here, and I finally, after 35 years, I'm cutting it down because it's beginning to die out. But for much of that time, it was a real focal point, is the weeping mulberry. The uh, It's white mulberry. It's the same thing. It's a spontaneous prostrate version that showed up at some point in the trade. This happens. And so people figured out if we graft it up high. All right. So the understock is regular mulberry. Watch that. Don't let it sprout. Grafted up six feet or so. They they budded or grafted on two buds of the weeping form. If you happen to get the male one, you have no fruit. If you happen to get the female one, you do have fruit. It's pleasant, mild flavored fruit. It's not one of the most exciting mulberries. 
and it has seeds, unlike most of the mulberries I would sell you for fruit. So the seedlings come up. So I would suggest the male cultivar in those situations. And it makes this really cool mound, like a cave. And when our kids were young, we would just shear a door into it so they could go in there and use it as a, as a hideout. And it went on for many, many years before finally dying out on the inside and becoming unsightly. But the weeping forms of mulberry are out there. And garden centers typically have them in the winter. And they'll give it's a real interesting focal point with those great big dark green mulberry leaves. And if you happen to have the fruiting one, as I do, the jays and mockingbirds will have a field day when it's in fruit. So that's another bonus is that you get a lot of birds coming in. If that's not something you want, because you want the kids to be able to play in there, again, get the male cultivar in that particular case. So there's a lot of plants that have these weeping forms that we can work with that aren't nearly as aggressive or problematic as weeping willows. And again, weeping willows, there's a whole category of trees. When I make recommended tree lists, we're talking about this in this bigger tree database project I'm working on. There are some trees that I describe as rural trees only. If you're out in the country, you can grow these with full awareness of what you're doing. Don't plant them in a typical residential setting. There was a very visible weeping willow in Davis for many, many years. The corner of Oak Avenue and Anderson. Eighth, thank you. And uh, it was a beautiful tree right out front. And it was we learned that tree when I was a student in the 1970s. And they finally took it out about five years ago, something like that, when it was literally falling apart. That was a long run for a weeping willow. 30 to 40 years is typically their lifespan. Then you have a tree that's sort of falling apart and coming up from the roots further out. So these are riparian trees that you should approach carefully in terms of using them in your landscape. But there are alternatives to the weeping well. Now, locally, we have one I do want to mention because people ask about it every so often. Chilean Maiten, Maitenus boaria. And the cultivar that's on the market almost exclusively is called Green Showers. This is not one that has the strong... Uh, hormonal thing causing its weeping appearance. It simply has dangling branches. It has a normal growth habit with branches that are rather lax and tiny, shiny leaves. And it, I fell in love with them when I moved here. I thought, this is it. This is the perfect answer. It looks like a weeping willow on a small scale. Problem is, even then, there's this dieback problem on the Chilean May 10, where a branch would die, another branch would die. And that would just go on throughout the life of the tree. I still have customers who have them. They were widely planted in the 70s and 80s. And this dieback problem is quite persistent, to put it mildly. They typically get into a relationship with a tree service that's fairly artistic about pruning and can keep them as attractive plants. That's okay. I wouldn't plant one. I want you to know about the dieback problem if you happen to have one. And it suckers prolifically. So anywhere you have a Chilean May 10, they come up all through the garden bed. So it's got a lot of drawbacks, but it's still a very lovely tree in its place, probably not in a residential setting. If you've got a residential property and you want one of those weeping trees, first ones I would look at would be the flowering cherries. And by the way, there are some crab apples that are comparable in terms of their growth habit and their beautiful bloom in the spring. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRTLP 95.7 in Davis, California.